Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Today, I'm taking an excursion with Dr. Toyin Ajayi, co-founder and now CEO of CityBlock Health. Dr. Ajayi is a primary care doctor and entrepreneur, having created a company with a multi-billion dollar valuation based on meeting the needs of patients, many with quite complex needs, in their communities. Now, I've had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Ajayi speak a number of times. Her vision and ability to describe that vision is unparalleled, and you're going to get the benefit of that in our episode today. We're going to talk about building a healthcare business that focuses on historically underserved populations. What inspired the work? What challenges has she had to overcome? Where is CityBlock headed? We'll cover these and more topics on today's episode. Uh, Dr. Ajayi, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Alan. It's nice to be with you. It's so great to be able to spend some time with you. I want to just start with sort of the creation story. You know, what was the inspiration? This is not an idea that uh, everyone has or jumps into everyone's head, but it did come to yours. So give us a bit of the creation story of City Block Health. Sure. Well, so as you know, um, there's a real need for better, more integrated, more person-centered, higher value services um, provided to people um, in lower income communities. That's just, that's always been true. And I think I sort of smiled a little bit when you said, you know, this is, this is such a novel idea. In many ways, it wasn't. When you talk to any physician in a community health center across this country, you talk to a physician or an advanced practice clinician or a nurse in the ER or on the hospital wards of a safety net hospital, um, they know exactly what we what we know to be true, which is that the system's really just not working. It's not working. Um, we're constantly readmitting to the hospital people with advanced physical health conditions, with mental health challenges, struggling with substance use disorders, limited in terms of what we're able to do for them by either the short acute episode or the short outpatient visit or the lack of mental health and social services supports to wrap around them. Like that is, that's sort of the status quo for most people and most clinicians caring for folks who struggle with the the convergence of low income and social challenges and structural racism and lack of access to a sufficient um, uh, healthcare resources and mental health and physical health challenges, right? That, that, that's the baseline. And so the idea that like something different needs to occur for different outcomes to, to result is not one that I can say that like I came up with uniquely, right? Like it's, it's just sort of there staring us in the face. I think the the sort of the question then about, well, what do you do about it, right? How do we affect change that is going to be lasting and radical and transformational in a system that has been so ingrained around a fee-for-service structure of reimbursement, around units of healthcare services sort of somehow equating to what we call healthcare? That was, I think, the thing that was novel about CityBlock. And that was a sort of the, the sort of the big idea that, that catapulted us into, into the business that we're building today. And again, it was taking pieces of what we knew to be true. Um, we know it, that it is true that more than 60% of what determines a person's health outcomes is not about their DNA, their genetic makeup, the diagnoses they have, the medications they take. It's about their social factors. It's about where they live, where they sleep, who they live with, what they eat what they have access to in their daily lives. So we already know that. We knew that to be true. We know that for people with chronic physical health conditions, that there is a dramatic and significant unmet need for behavioral health services. That if you're living with three or four chronic conditions, diabetes and heart failure and and high blood pressure, that the likelihood that you have depression 
or some anxiety or trauma associated with your experiences with the healthcare system, and that is also contributing to the worsening of your chronic physical health needs, that has also been documented. We know that to be true. And we know that if we integrate physical health and behavioral health services for people with chronic needs, that we actually improve outcomes, improve adherence to medications, and reduce rehospitalizations for those folks. We know that for people who struggle with serious mental illness, that the consequences of often the many of the medications that they take, as well as the lack of kind of focus peripherally from the healthcare system on their physical being, um, contributes to increased rates of smoking, of metabolic disorders, of diabetes, of high blood pressure, and that those conditions, in addition to lack of access to preventive care, to the colonoscopy, to the um, breast cancer screening, because we're so focused on the schizophrenia and the depression and the um, and the uh, bipolar disorder, that that also contributes to worse outcomes for these folks. And so the answer is, what if we put those things together? What if we solve for those needs, the social, the physical, the behavioral, in a community-based setting, um, in a model of care that is not predicated on 10-minute visits, some revenue, more 10-minute visits, more revenue, but is predicated on the sort of the value chain and, and total, total outcomes for a population. Again, that's a model that existed in a lot of primarily Medicare Advantage um, kind of uh, primary care practices, but we could adapt that to the Medicaid population. If you put all those things together, if you tap into a source of capital that allows you to really invest in technology, in tooling, in innovation, in practice redesign, could we could we create the thing that we all know that we need, which is a, a community-based, value-based, integrated provider of primary care, mental health, and social services focused on low-income communities that actually has a potential to change outcomes for those folks? Not to sort of like <laughs> undermine my own story, like it's not some sort of like act of radical insight or um, innovation, but really I think putting together a lot of things that we all know to be true and attempting to rationalize them into a model of care that, that actually has the potential to change outcomes. Well, you know, uh, many good ideas are the pulling together of threads that were already out there, but just doing it in a different way. Um, so don't sell yourself short. I, I, <laughs> I won't let you do that. I, I am struck when I look at your resume. You, for a few years, were the chief medical officer at Commonwealth Care Alliance, and that's a, a, a system that we've published papers on uh, at Health Affairs, so it had a strong evidence base. I, I can't help but wonder how much of your thinking here came out of your experience there. So much. I have so much to um, to to just be grateful to my experience at CCA and the, and the members that I cared for there, um, uh, as well as that was my entry point into value based care. So in my career, you know, I started as a, a family doc. Um, working in community health centers and in safety net hospital in Boston, seeing the same things I described at the beginning, right? Like really experiencing that sense of almost futility in terms of my ability to really get upstream and change outcomes to the populations that I was really passionate about serving. And my experience at Commonwealth Care Alliance allowed me to, to see it from a very different vantage point. Um, for those folks who don't know, who are listening to the podcast, um, Commonwealth Care Alliance is a, is a um, health plan um, that focuses on folks who are duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, but takes a really unique approach to integrating community-based clinical and social services and to managing the total cost of care for these populations, very high risk, very high cost populations. And their approach was to say, let's be very deeply clinically informed. My job when I joined was to work with data and actuary and finance and say, okay, so we've got an opportunity to really improve um, 
quality of course, experience, engagement, and total cost of care for a population of folks who have very high acute utilization that's driven by unmet needs in the community? How do we design programs to better serve their needs and also manage the financial burden or the financial opportunity that the plan was bearing. And so to do that in a place that really is centered around um, uh, clinical principles, but understands the business of how how we get paid for healthcare was really, really um, uh, just instrumental in my learning and certainly have taken a lot of those lessons forward and apply them to a much broader population. At City Buck, we serve the Medicaid population in addition to the duly eligible population in an attempt to really get as far upstream as possible and to focus on those clinical levers that we know are going to move the needle. Uh, let the health plans be health plans. What we're doing is taking care of, of the member, getting in front of the people, engaging with them, building trusted relationships with them, delivering care, and, and seeing the outcomes follow from that. Well, you know, we're a policy journal. So I look at this uh, picture and I have a ton of policy questions. So if you don't mind, I'm going to run through a few of those. I know they're not the ones that you... No, well, I shouldn't say I know. I would assume they're not the ones you focus on every day, but I know you've come across all of them. One of the first things I remember hearing you say when I, the first time I heard you speak was that your goal when you started City Block Health was to build a successful business. It was not to be a charitable operation dependent on foundation grants, which a lot of uh, sort of uh, programs that serve populations that have historically been underserved do. Um, but you wanted to to build a business, and you just a moment ago made reference to access to capital and infrastructure. So, from a from the perspective of people out in the policy world trying to solve these problems, I'd really like to get a sense of what effect the decision to make this a business, not a charity, if you will, or a donor recipient kind of uh, operation. What what effect has that had on what you do, on what you don't do, on what you're able to do or what you're unable to do? I, that seems like such a fundamental decision. I'd like to know more about it. Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked the question. Um, so I firmly believe in a couple of things, a couple of principles that guided this decision for us. The first is that we ought to dignify the experiences of care and the experience of the life experiences and the access to care of the populations whom we serve with sustainability. The idea that um, that we're that if we were a charitable um, uh, organization, and I've been through that cycle, that was my entire career up to this point, um, uh, beholden to funding cycles that are very short, often beholden to um, uh, grants or research projects that have strings attached to them, we actually lose the ability to say this matters and it will continue to matter and we will continue to find ways to make this self-sustaining to scale and to grow and it was really really important that we dignify the people and the work with creating from the very outset a path for sustainability and i believe that if you can build a sustainable business an economically viable business in this space others too will continue to serve others too will serve right and this becomes a thing that is not well, if you really care about, you know, low income folks with serious mental illness who also have breast cancer, you can fund a project. It's like, no, 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 this matters because there's a sustainable source of funding and a sustainable business model to enable it to grow. And that is that is not a sort of a universal truth. That is a truth I hold in the United States in this moment in time, given the way that we um, our policies are set up around healthcare, Right. And so it's a pragmatic decision that very much says 
we've got to find ways to make this sustainable. And the way to make it sustainable is to create a sustainable and scalable business case for this work. That's first. The second is that because historically a lot of the work that has been done to advance and innovate and care in lower income marginalized communities has been philanthropically funded, I believe we've been constrained by around an ability to really radically innovate because often these projects and programs exist right up against embedded within fee-for-service structures, traditional healthcare delivery systems. And we're rearranging the chairs a little bit over here for a pilot program, or we're, you know, redesigning our model, but we're still using the same EHR and the same technology that governs the rest of the work that we do. And the ability to bring in de novo resources focused on innovation, true innovation with talent, with technology, with a point of view and a mindset that goes way beyond healthcare that's not anchored to the status quo, I think is what's necessary for a real transformation in the way that we experience care. And so part of the things that we've been able to do that I think would be very difficult to do um, in another circumstance is to say, we're going to bring in people on marketing and engagement and trust building that have never set foot in front of a healthcare, inside a healthcare organization to bring the approach that we would bring to building a trusted ubiquitous brand for healthcare to this problem space, to what does it look like to build that for Medicaid and low-income populations who have inherently um, reduced levels of trust in healthcare today? What does it look like for us to bring technologists who build tools and systems for consumer products with the same mindset and philosophy and apply that to this problem space? To be creative about how we apply our tools and our resources and um, and doing that in in, in a a for-profit venture-backed space has really allowed us to tap into those resource pools and to do so with an eye, as I said earlier, to, to, to create a to sustainable business case. And I think the final part of your question or the beginning part of your question really was talking about like, what is this, what is the interplay almost with policymakers? And um, and I, I really love thinking about that. I love, um, I, I admire, first of all, and I'm so grateful for the incredible policymakers that I've worked with and gotten to, um, gotten to partner with because Making decisions um, at the policy level, at the state, and in, in, it's the state and the federal level that influence healthcare access and the healthcare experience and healthcare outcomes and healthcare financing for millions of people across the country is a really, really difficult job. And it's not, it's not just a policy job, it's a political job in many instances as well. And I, I just am so grateful and, and admiring of folks who have done that work. And I believe that my job and certainly at this phase in my career and in the way that we're building at CityBlock is to be a partner to those policymakers, to take the intent. Um, folks who are writing, you know, I started my, my career, as I said, um, in, in the dual space, folks who are writing the policy for the Medicare, Medicaid demonstration programs that were for the first time going to bring under 65 duly eligible folks into managed care programs and integrated contracts. Their intent was to improve access, quality, experience and outcomes of care for folks who had the most complex needs and had the most to gain and the most to lose from the way our system was functioning. And my job in that space is to take the intent and translate that into an experience that actually delivers and to continue to be an innovation partner for policymakers who are trying their best to figure out all the different paths that they need to do to ensure that we're delivering what we need to deliver for folks in this country. Well, I want to hear more about what it's going to take to expand the model. Uh, We'll have that conversation after we take a short break.
And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Toyin Ajayi, co-founder and now CEO of CityBlock Health. We were talking about what it takes to succeed as a business serving traditionally underserved, historically underserved uh, population. Uh, you described before the break some of the advantages of, of a sustainable business model. You mentioned earlier the challenges of sort of gluing a little side program on top of a fee-for-service chassis. And uh, you also mentioned your experience at Commonwealth Care Alliance, where you were serving uh, duels as a, and, and, and the Medicare Advantage model, which is a capitation model. We publish paper after paper after paper, analyzing different payment models. And you can't go to a health policy conference without people talking about the importance of moving from fee-for-service to some sort of a value-based capitated model. And yet, despite hearing that all the time, there, there aren't a lot of city blocks. There, there, most organizations don't take that change and do what you're doing. So I guess I want to ask, and I, I, I'm, I'm not going to be shy here, I have been skeptical about how much payment reform really is the driver or can be the driver here. But talk to me about the payment side and and what it takes on your end of the payment side, on the payer side to, to make this work. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I your skepticism, I think, is well-founded. I mean, first of all, your expertise like would lead that to that. But also, um, you know, it's not, there's no silver bullet here, right? And so I think we need we need many things to happen all at once, um, ideally in a very well-coordinated way to make and sustain the types of changes that we want to see in the healthcare ecosystem. But I do believe that that payment reform and payment changes are a big part of that puzzle. Um, when you look at what we do for the members whom we serve, our ability to, to do things like accompany a person to housing court to help them advocate so that they don't get evicted, because we know that once they become houseless, their risk of worsening health needs um, and their risk for really poor outcomes significantly increases. Um, accompanying and supporting folks and getting food that's adequate for them, not just physically accessing the food, but how do you use it? How do you think about nutrition? How do you feed your family on a limited income? Providing some truly, truly almost immeasurable sense of being seen and valued for people who are, are struggling with loneliness and isolation, don't have a place to call or place to go. These are the types of things that we everybody needs, but particularly folks who are struggling with the most complex health and mental health um, needs and in combination with poverty. There's no billing or reimbursement code for that in a fee-for-service environment. We wouldn't even know how to start. And if we did, we would start to reduce those really like tremendously valuable human encounters to a number on a fee schedule and undermine, I believe, the magic of what happens when you are engaged in longitudinal trusted relationships around shared goals and outcomes. And so we have to have pay, like value-based payment structures to enable us to invest and deliver the holistic model of care that actually moves the needle and changes outcomes. In addition to the home visiting, the primary care, the case conferencing, the, the the time we spend on our members when they're not even in the room, figuring out how we can better advance the care that we provide to them. That stuff matters so much. That is actually the crux of what unlocks the value that we see in terms of reduced hospitalizations and reduced medical spend for these populations. So we need payment reform. What it means for payers is that they have to be willing to 
contract very differently. Um, they need to be willing to contract across a population of individuals, across a longitudinal time frame, with the idea that we are accountable for managing spend over time and not just in an episodic way. And it, what it means for us is, I think, um, in part to your sort of observation that there are still, um, although there's been significant movement in that direction, there are not you know, thousands of city blocks out there yet. Um, it requires providers to either capitalize the the like real cutover. I think having one foot in each canoe is very hard. We see a lot of folks do that, right? Um, uh, you know, participated in ACO for this subpopulation of folks, but also, you know, the revenue for the hospital or for the health system really comes from acute hospitalizations and surgical procedures. Um, that that's a sort of the the old way of of making money in healthcare combined with with perhaps a little dip in the you know toe in the water of the new way that's hard where we we benefit very much from having been built fit for purpose for this world um, for the world that we th- we believe is continuing we're continuing to evolve into and so we don't have that dual um, accountability we don't have that um, dual bottom line perspective we are focused very much on there's one business model for us. It is contracting and value-based relationships. It's allowing us to take financial risk um, and to invest in the clinical and social services that our members need to achieve long-term outcomes. Um, and that is that's exciting, I think, for um, for payers because that's essentially what they're what they're aiming to do. They needed partners with whom to do that. And operating in this sort of uh business space, you know, what one hears is there's an imperative for growth. And I'm curious, I mean, do you, uh, does that distort your, I shouldn't, that's a too, too laden a term, but how does the need for growth affect the decisions you make? Do you just sort of look for additional markets? Uh, uh, how, how How do you take on the business side of this? So there's a couple things to observe here. First is that the, you know, the total addressable market, which is a sort of like, um, you know, another way to approximate the folks whom we could potentially impact. It's huge. There are so many millions of people across the country who deserve and require and would benefit from a different experience of care. And as a result, have different outcomes that are aligned with our kind of business proposition as as a company. And so I'm not, we're not worried about growth in an abstract way in the terms of our ability to to scale what we do. We know that there's an opportunity there. We certainly know that there are um, plans who are excited about this. We know that there are populations and communities that need and value and would benefit from this model. What we also know is actually that as you look to scale a business like ours, that geographic density matters just as much as overall growth, right? And so um, being able to really deeply understand the communities in which we operate to build high-functioning, mutually valuable relationships with other actors within the healthcare and social systems, the hospitals, the community-based organizations with whom we partner, requires volume, requires some density, requires that we're actually serving a meaningful proportion of the members who we could serve in an existing geography. Um, That allows us to to do the work better and it allows us to build, as I said, deeper and more effective relationships with the folks that we coordinate with outside of our four walls. And so I actually think very much about aligning growth with 
the business objectives and and the levers that will enable us to do our work better and to deliver better outcomes, as opposed to sort of this abstract notion that one must grow as quickly as possible in order to um, in order to sort of feed the business. Um, I think the other thing that is um, just worth noting, as we deepen our partnerships with our existing um, payer partners, they too will ask us to take on more for them, right? And um, and those opportunities to grow with our existing partners are ones that we take very seriously and are really excited about because it continues to um, to be proof points of the work that we do and the value that our partners see in that. And so that's how we approach it um, from a from a business perspective. You serve on the Health Affairs Council on uh, Healthcare Spending and Value. We talk a lot about downward pressure that uh, people for good reason, think we spend too much money on healthcare. And that can translate into budget cuts, state Medicaid budgets being under pressure, uh, potentially structural changes debated every few decades around Medicare and Medicaid. You're in a space where you're, it seems to me, you're pretty dependent upon ongoing public support for meeting the needs of these populations. How do you factor in the risk of political winds blowing in a direction that say, we just can't afford to serve these populations the way we have in the past? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the price of doing business in this space, right? Like that is that is inherent risk. We could certainly we could have built a business that served commercially insured folks, where we know that the you know the premiums will be rich and the reimbursement is is hefty, and you know there's much more stability, at least in the, the sort of the economics that underpin that. That's not what we're here for. Um, we're here to serve folks who receive their care um, through payers that are federal and state funded, and that requires us to really deeply understand the political and policy landscapes that underpin reimbursement for Medicaid and for Medicare and to, to factor that into the business. Um, you can't fully de-risk that for sure. Um, but what I will say is that um, is that ultimately the payer is in some way, shape or form the taxpayer, right? And if we all recognize that, which I think many policymakers really do, it behooves us to invest in preventive care. It behooves us to invest in integrated and coordinated care. It behooves us to invest in finding and connecting folks who need it the most, who are likely to have escalating healthcare needs over time, folks who are struggling with homelessness and with substance use and with mental health challenges. And what we see is that most states arrive at that decision in some way, shape, or form. Um, And that's why we've seen a significant trend towards, first of all, you know, adoption of Medicaid expansion, right? We're not there yet, but today only 12 states have chosen not to do that yet. It, it takes time, but we're getting there. We see that in the form of, of states moving towards managed Medicaid and increasingly asking managed care organizations to be accountable for finding those most vulnerable within their population and ensuring that they are connected to the kind of services that CityBot provides. We're seeing that trend and we're seeing that in the form of increasing value placed on mental health services, increasing value placed on an understanding of integration of social services. And so I, you know, it's not, we're not sort of asking folks to do something that is counter to another goal. We have, we share the same goals. We share the same goals, which is to manage effectively and appropriately the um, constrained resources available to provide care 
to folks who really need it through government programs. And so that allows us to really be aligned with the best interests of policymakers in a way that ensures that the work that we do and the populations whom we serve will continue to be priority populations and the services we provide will continue to be a priority to the states in which we operate. So I think that alignment is really interesting. I'm always intrigued, though, about the intersection of uh, for-profit and in this instance, venture capital funded, uh, seed funded business and the taxpayer. So is there a tension here? Do you feel that tension? There's two ways to answer that question. The first is, um, you know, if, if, if we were starting all over again, and it was mine to design, um, I would design the way that we fund and administer healthcare in the United States very differently, right? And, and so that's, that is, that's a, that's a fact. I think there's lots of ways to debate it, but this is the system that we have. The system that we have relies on intermediaries across every stage of the healthcare delivery ecosystem, um, some of whom are for-profit and some of whom are non-for-profit. I think the non-for-profit designation doesn't necessarily mean as much as one might think it does in terms of alignment, um, in terms of investment in community. It is, it's a tax designation as much as anything else, in fact, more so than anything else. And so we'll leave that sort of where it is. But we're talking about a healthcare system that has been designed to be administered and delivered by third-party entities, non-governmental entities, whatever the construct is, by and large. And so the question about what does it look like for us to create a market place in which these other entities can participate and race to value and race to quality and race to better outcomes, as opposed to race to margins primarily, that's a question for policymakers. And I don't think we've always done that job very well, as ideally as we could, creating the right regulations, the right governance structures, the right incentives, and the right penalties for monopolistic behavior, for price gouging, for, you know, um, uh, inflationary practices. Like, that's what is required of the system that we have decided collectively to administer in this country. And the role that our company plays and companies like ours play is to participate within those constraints and do the very best that we can to align our business model towards a race to value, to allow the, the sort of the, 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 the sort of bull case on, on why we've constructed our system this way, which is that we have created opportunities for innovation. We've created opportunities for alignment of margin with better experiences, and better outcomes. We've, we've created ideally the right circumstances to create exactly what we want in terms of advancing the experiences, the care, the outcomes, the quality that we're able to deliver in this country. Like that's our job is to align ourselves with that principle within the policy and regulatory framework so that we can deliver the most that we possibly can for the taxpayer's investment in the services that we provide. Well, as we uh, bring our conversation to a close, I want to return a little bit more to your own story. Uh, I'm curious if you can look back on your early career and think of a moment or two, a decision or two that you made early on that you think is most consequential. And I ask you this in part, hoping that I have listeners who are early on in their uh, thinking about where they're going to go and are really interested and intrigued by what you're doing and drawn to it. And um, what either advice, but I would frame it more as what choices do you feel you may have made that that have guided you in the direction that you've gone? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, so I'll, I'll give you, I'll try to give you two. The first, um, 
it's taken me a long time to see how this all played in actually. Um, but the first was I started my career very early um, doing a lot of global health work. And I was working in Sierra Leone um, and focused on health system strengthening, working with a community hospital. It was a government funded um, pediatric hospital right in the middle of this very, very impoverished part of um, the capital city, Freetown in Sierra Leone. And we were just, I mean, I can't tell you how hard we worked to get this hospital from no running water, no electricity, um, hardly any doctors and nurses available, an inconsistent supply of medications to what would look like a certainly low resource, but somewhat functioning hospital. We got doctors and nurses and we started a residency program and we um, figured out the blood bank, got the electricity working, got a water supply, built a triage, built an intensive care unit. And there was a lot of activity and certainly a lot of investment happening in making this hospital work better. And uh, a couple of years into this experience, we looked at some of our data um, and we looked at pretty crude measures, mortality, what proportion of the kids who came into the hospital made it out alive. And what we found was that despite all of the investments and resources in this hospital, we'd not made a meaningful dent at all in mortality. And I remember being really, really disappointed. And really, this is my sort of mid twenties. I was, re- I was so discouraged, and um, and started asking, trying to figure out why this could be true. How could it be true that, objectively speaking, we have a shiny, bright, wonderful organization, wonderful, better organization here, and we're still not having the impact we want to see in the communities that we're serving? And um, I started doing some research, um, uh, pulled charts, reviewed all these patient charts myself. And then started talking, as we are wont to do, to people like me, the other doctors in the hospital, the nurses, the administrators. And I said, what's going on here? What do you think? And we started to arrive at some answers. And those answers looked and sounded a lot like things I would hear later in my career. Well, it's the patients. They wait too long to come in when their kid is sick. They're illiterate. They're not well-educated. They don't understand the signs of, of illness. They don't follow public health instructions. They have too many children anyway, and they don't know how to take care of them. Um, They don't listen when we tell them what to do, right? And it could have stopped there, and it really could have ended there. Um, But I decided at the time to go into the community and talk to family members and talk to patients. And and I actually, we actually did a little sort of PSA on the local radio show and invited people who were carers of small children to come talk to us about what their experiences of healthcare were. And so asking grannies and moms and aunts and cousins, what do you do when a kid is sick? First of all, how do you know when a child is sick? And surprising to all of us, they knew exactly when their child was sick. It wasn't a lack of recognition or a lack of education. They knew exactly when their kid was sick. What do you do? And what they said was, I call my cousin. I go to the pharmacist who I trust. I call the traditional healer who healed me the last time. I go to the midwife who delivered me of my baby. I go back to my hometown six hours away because I know I can trust them there. And then we said, well, why don't you come to the hospital? And they said, well, because when we come, you make us feel like we don't belong. You make us feel like it's our fault we're here. You do things to our kids and you don't explain them to us. You don't ask our permission. You talk about us like we brought this on ourselves. You don't act with sympathy and with kindness and compassion. And that stuck with me so profoundly because when I was Fast forward many years in Boston, doing my residency um, uh, and working in a community hospital that served underserved and marginalized populations, I subliminally started to recognize the language. These are non-compliant patients. They're non-adherent. 
They don't follow instructions. They're frequent flyers. They're the CHFers who also take cocaine and therefore implicitly it's their fault that they're here with heart failure. Um, We were doing the same thing. And in the sort of bastion that is Boston, when it comes to medical education and technology and hospitals and systems, I was seeing people fall out, opt out of accessing care because they didn't feel valued and respected. And for me, that was such a profound lesson about the importance of walking in, aligning with a community, learning from, like really humbly learning from them and asking what we can do to serve them, and also of building and scaling trust in the healthcare system. That was like such an eye-opener for me. Like even in a country like Sierra Leone, where there are very few resources available to people. People voted with their feet. They said, we're not coming to the hospital. Even if it's free, I don't care because I get treated like crap. I get treated like I don't matter. And people do the same thing over and over and over again. And so we have to address bias, stigma, um, disrespect within the healthcare system if we're going to change outcomes for people who need it the most. And so that was a really pivotal, I think, experience and lesson for me that has carried through with me for a long time. I think the second one was, um, and has been really thinking about um, what it means. I call myself like an accidental um, uh, entrepreneur. Like I don't, I didn't, I wasn't one of those people that went, I didn't, I don't have an MBA. I never thought I was going to be an entrepreneur. I'd never really even heard of venture capital or Silicon Valley in any meaningful way before I started this journey. This is not what I'm about. I'm, I'm about trying to figure out how to do things differently and better for our members. And personally, I'm about knocking on every door, using every tool available to me in the most pragmatic way possible to try to shift what what our patients are receiving and what they need to get. And so I think the sort of the big choice was to make that leap of faith, right? To to step out of the comfort zone um, that so many of us, especially physicians, get on, get into. And it's, it's uncomfortable because we feel unfulfilled in many ways. And we're talking so much about burnout and moral injury, it's not comfortable in that it is cushy, but it's defined, right? I was on a path where if I stayed doing what I was doing, I'd be an assistant professor, and then I'd become an associate professor, maybe I'd get a research grant, and then I'd get to teach more. And I could, that path was pretty well defined. To step off of that into something that was wildly unknown, that has led me to places that I couldn't even have conceived of, um, it took something. I'm not sure what it was. Maybe a little bit of hubris and a little bit of um, naivete. And I think more than anything, just like a driving desire to continue to push until we reshape the experience of care that the people that I care deeply about ensuring have access to quality services receive. Um, And so I would say that, especially in a moment like this, when so much feels out of our control more broadly in the political landscape, in the social landscape, from the climate perspective, um, taking a leap for those who are privileged and able to do so can be wildly rewarding and, um, and can contribute to something that like, people would never have imagined. Certainly, I, it's been, that's been my experience for sure. Well, Dr. Ajayi, thank you for sharing both of those stories. They put everything else you said in so much context, and I'm glad I asked the question. Um, Thank you also for the work you do, for the commitment you bring to it, to trying to create an environment of respect and honor of the people who we give a lot of lip service to how much we want to serve them, but we often don't design our systems around serving them. And it's it's inspiring to hear how you talk about uh, what takes your, uh, what brings you to work every day. And uh, 
Thank you also for being my guest today on Health Policy. Thank you so much, Alan. It's always nice to talk with you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.